0: Should abortions be allowed for university students on the cusp of completing their education, launching into a career? Might sound like a very simple one to unpack, but it's actually a little bit more detailed than you might think. That's what I'm going to dive into today. Stay tuned. Hi, folks. Welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion so together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. My name is Cam. I'm the host of the show. If you're brand new, welcome to the show. For the first time, if you've been a long time listener, thank you so, so much. I feel like I've been... Touching base with a ton of people of late who have been longtime listeners from different pro-life organizations. Shout out to Terry from Protect Life Michigan, Melissa um, from our wonderful uh, Peel Against Abortion group. We've got videos coming out um, on our YouTube channel for Humans of the Pro-Life Movement for a few of these uh, wonderful, wonderful people contributing towards the global pro-life movement. Um it's been a joy, especially in this new year with this kind of renewed focus on diving deep into apologetics. I am really excited. I, I just finished a really exciting meeting with um, the editor of the show, Matty Halleck. He's an absolute champ. Um, he does wonderful work behind the computer, making me sound and look as good as he possibly can. Um and some really cool ideas for how we can grow the show, how we can better serve your needs um, to equip you as even more effective ambassadors for pre-born children. I hope that you had a chance to check out last week's episode, um, which really focused on being an effective ambassador through the lens of character, knowledge, and wisdom. And today we're going to dive into a very concrete example of... What what should we say? How do we approach a question, a justification in support of abortion? We're going to talk a lot through the roadmap. Um, I will drop in the show notes below a link to a, an episode I did focused on the roadmap for how to have effective conversations about abortion. I'll drop that in there um, so that any of you who didn't catch it or might need a refresher can, can check that out um, before I even dive into this episode. But I will detail again a little bit of um, the roadmap, obviously, um, in theory and in principle as I go through it in practical terms as well in today's episode. And so to give a little bit of context, I'm going to do this a little bit more in these episodes as well, not only where this conversation came up, but also what we need to be thinking about behind the episode in general. So, This past time of posting um, about 10 days ago um, on Saturday, July, what would have been July 13th, my dad's birthday, actually, um, coincidentally, um, July, uh, sorry, January 13th. Saturday, January 13th, uh, my colleague Jeff and I, Jeff is our Community Outreach Coordinator that we featured um, through the Christmas season, talking about some of our outcomes in Western Canada. Um, Jeff and I went up to Edmonton, um, and on the Saturday night, we met with a team of volunteers who are a part of Edmonton Against Abortion um, to do a practice conversation um, evening. We we got some pizza. We had some wonderful snacks provided by Linda, who's one of the leaders of the group up there, um, and we had a really good opportunity to dive into a number of the the topics that come up while talking about abortion. And to pull the to pull the the curtain back a little bit, when I was launching into this mock dialogue night, this practice night of pro-lifers, um, I was pretending to be an abortion advocate, and we we're going to walk through. I must admit, initially, when I selected. The justification of what about a mother who's in university, um, who becomes pregnant, don't you think she should be allowed to have an abortion? I I must admit, when I proposed that, I thought this was going to be the first really quick example, and then we were going to dive into a number of other examples. But in reality, we ended up unpacking it and spending a lot of our evening talking about this issue of people in university, people in post-secondary, people on the cusp of ending one chapter of their life and moving into another chapter of their life, whether it's post-secondary, whether it's secondary school, um, or even other transitionary times in their life um, who become pregnant and realize that the next chapter of their story is nowhere near what they thought it was going to be. And I realized why this seems to be such a, a short um, theory or, or, or justification in some of our minds, but for many other people, it's actually a very in-depth one because in many ways, I, I've come to realize over the last number of years working in the pro-life movement that it feels like every single year, the, the notion and concept of success becomes narrower and narrower what it takes to be successful in our world, what different people define as being successful gets narrower and narrower every year. And I think there's a few few factors that are pushing towards it. I feel like there's a crisis around identity. Identity, obviously we have seen identity politics, we've seen gender identity, we've seen a number of different areas of where identity is falling into disarray. And I feel like identity around success is also falling into disarray. And what I mean by that is so many of the university and college age students that I talk to, including high school students actually, have such a narrow understanding of who they will be when they're successful. For so many of them, they have picked out their career trajectory and it's not even open for discussion anymore. It's not even something that they are actively... Um, exploring other opportunities or or gauging the marketplace for interest or opportunity. It's a matter of many of the people that I talk to um, young people and some of them uh, slightly older as well will say to me, you know what, like I need to become a computer programmer. Like if I don't end up becoming a, a computer programmer, then I have failed. Then like I, I have failed because that is written so deeply into the identity that I have written for myself that I won't be able to show my face at my high school reunions. I won't be able to show my face at uh, my my friends or my family when they know that I dropped out of school, when they know that I didn't pursue my dream of becoming not, um, I mean, not that it's childish to, to pursue a, a dream of becoming an astronaut or a firefighter, but um, if I don't end up being the profession or um Area of expertise that I had anticipated, then I will have failed at life. And there are people who are terrified, terrified of failure, particularly when it is so narrowly defined. When the pressure put on them from their family, from their peers, from other people around them, um, it's very real for a lot of people. There are a lot of families who put a tremendous amount of pressure on their children to pursue particular careers, whether it's academic, whether it's sporting careers, whether it's other things. I mean, we see this um, in pop culture. We see, I mean, many people will have seen the um, Coach Carter with um, Samuel L. Jackson and the narrow definition of being a successful basketball player. People have seen this remember the Titans in in football and what it means to be successful and how revolutionary it can seem to, you know, it's more important to be a good person than to be the best player on the the sports team. There's people whose parents have so preferentially focused on a, another sibling, an older, younger, same age sibling, who appears to be more successful in the world. I I think in, of how, um, this is put in a jokingly way, again, another pop culture reference. Um, for those of you out there who consume pop culture, maybe as much as I do, Mia um, culpa, I suppose, um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You think about um, the character Amy and the inferiority complex she has with her older brother, um, who seems to be perfect at everything and the dynamics that go through a lot of people's minds. I mean, it, it's played out in my personal family. I know that up until I was in grade 11, I had a really hard time. Wanting to associate with my older brother because he just seemed so perfect in every way. And I felt like I was so desperate to compete with him in an academic sense. And then I realized that he was more more gifted, largely through um, how much attention he put towards it, um, academics, that that I might have had a greater breakthrough in, in sports. And so, and my dad became my sports coach and and I got a lot of attention because of my pursuit of athletic endeavors. And that became really important to me that so long as I performed at a high level in sports, then I would garner the attention of not only my parents, but also um, my friends, my my classmates and and people that I wanted to be attracted to me, people that I wanted to fit in with. If I could only draw their attention through my athletic exploits, then I would make it in the the cool kids crowd or whatever. Like we joke about it all the time now, but it's so real for people. And while yes, it's absolutely offensive towards my parents now, when I say that I thought that I needed to perform well in sports to garner their affection and, and how sad in that makes them feel. And That's a reality, though. That was a reality for me, and I know that that's a reality for a ton of other people, particularly other people who may not have the privilege of the upbringing that I have been blessed with and that many people in the audience have been blessed with. And so there's a narrow uh, identity definition of success that I need to fit within a particular echelon of society to be deemed successful within my own eyes and within the approval ratings of the people that I care about, my friends, my family, that sort of thing. But also there's a tremendous amount of pressure for success when it comes to inflation in our economy. I, I'm far from an economist. I'm not going to dive very deeply into my understanding or more so lack thereof, of the economy, but I, I, I don't think that you need to be a rocket scientist to know that life is expensive. Life is very expensive, um, not only for an individual life, not only to provide for a family and a spouse potentially, but even more importantly, in the eyes of so many in the, the up and coming generation, it is expensive to project a particular identity and lifestyle, it is really difficult to be able to travel with your friends, and I mean to, to get tickets to the Taylor Swift concert, is going to cost you an arm and a leg. And to be able to pursue your passions and your interests and your hobbies—hobbies hobbies are so expensive nowadays. It's so difficult to really enjoy anything without having a lot of money in your bank account. And so, there's these two huge factors contributing towards people's drive towards success. And and between that, between the identity component and um, the the f- fiscal realities of our world, the question of shouldn't abortion be allowed for somebody who is in post secondary and is approaching their career, but they don't have the white picket fence, they don't have their feet firmly planted in a career, is becoming more and more common, and in many ways, more and more not agreeable, obviously, but understandable when you when you appreciate the perspective that so many of these young people are coming from. And it's one thing for somebody like me, I mean, I'm 30, 33 turning 34 this year, um, uh, believe it or not, with all the gray hair, um, for those of you tuning in on the YouTube channel, but um, I'm 33 and a lot of people who are my age and have been established in their career for five or maybe even 10 years, you know, to take a year or two or even more off um, to pursue family life, you know, what? Like, it's pretty likely that most people who are as old as I am or even a little bit younger would be able to jump back into their career afterwards. If, if you've been working within your field, within your industry for five years, you take a couple years off and you reapply to jobs with five years experience, there's a relatively high likelihood that, that I or others would be able to get a new job. Um, Whereas for a 21, 22 year old student who has three years of education, no formal letters behind or in front of their name and no work experience, they might look at all of the investment that they have put into their post-secondary education and say, I'm gonna throw all of that down the tube. Even financially, I mean, when you think about how the average university now has an annual tuition for most students of the ballpark of like fifteen to twenty five thousand dollars, you get you get three years into a university degree that you anticipate is going to get you a, a high paying job, and you sunk seventy five thousand dollars of student loans into this program, and become pregnant, and now being faced with what do I do? I have all of these student loans and I had a plan. I had a business plan to be able to pay off these student loans in four or five years and be making money and earning money and buying a house by the time I'm 30. And now not only can I not start my career and so these student loans are going to be sitting there, but I'm going to have to drop out of school for a year to provide care to my child. And Not only are those student loans sitting there, but now they're accruing interest and now they're requiring payment back. And now I don't even know if I'm going to jump in. Like, I know that I'm belaboring this point. I know I'm 15 minutes into this episode, but I think that this is vital for us to be able to appreciate the perspective that people are coming from. And so what are we going to do? What are we going to do bearing all of this in mind? We are going to implement our roadmap for effective conversations. And step one in that roadmap is addressing the justification, meeting people where they're at, seeking to understand, and trying to appreciate the fact that this is a dilemma that many people are faced with. However, by way of analogy, we do not solve problems like this, dilemmas like this by killing innocent humans. We're going to ask a question there as well. And so if somebody says this to me, I'm going to say something to the effect of step one, common ground uh, within the justification, common ground. I agree with you. That that would be a brutal place to be in, not only socially because of the pressures from your peers, from your family, from maybe even um, professional job opportunities that you have, but even more so fiscally and everything else that goes into this. I agree that this is a massive problem that a mother and or a father would be faced with. Step one, agree with them that this is a problem that demands a solution. Step two make an analogy, trot out the toddler to demonstrate the principle using someone that they can better relate to than a pre-born child that we cannot kill innocent humans to solve even the hardest of problems. So I finish that common ground, and I say something to the effect of, imagine that a mother with a two-year-old child lost her job at a family business, a family business that had hired her for a number of years because uh, regardless of her credentials, because they knew that she could contribute in a particular way. However, the family business goes under and now she is required to upgrade her schooling if she's going to get any kind of a comparable job um, or career opportunity maybe she doesn't even have her diploma, maybe she doesn't have the the degree requisites or other certificates um, that would be necessary for her to get a comparable job. And she's faced with the dilemma of not being able to provide for her born child if she's, first of all, not working. Second of all, if she has all of those time commitments and the group projects and everything else that goes into it, the social pressure of going back to school as a a parent and and the difficulties that can go along with that. Imagine that the mother of that two-year-old child wanted to kill her born child so that she could more conveniently, more affordably, more socially appropriately pursue that opportunity. Should she be allowed to do that? The vast majority of people that you're going to talk to are going to say, obviously not. And so, what we want to do to pivot from talking about the difficulty of the circumstance to the humanity of preborn children is to ask a pivot question. If a mother cannot kill her born child, who may be a barrier between her and her furthering her education or career, why is it okay to kill that same child only a few years earlier as a preborn child for the exact same reason? So common ground analogy question to put that all together. I agree with you that that situation is very real and very important to be solved and appropriately dealt with. Imagine that a mother wanted to deal with a problem, the exact same problem involving a born child by killing the born child. And then the pivot question asking, if we're not okay or willing to kill a born child who may be a barrier between their parent pursuing further education or career, why are we okay killing the same child a few years earlier for the exact same reasons? We anticipate that the person we're talking to is going to say something to the effect of because it's different, because they're not even human, because it's just a fetus, because, 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 some kind of a differentiating statement between a born human and a pre-born human. And while we'd love it if the conversation ended right then and there that moves us to our second stage of the the roadmap so stage one is addressing the justification through bridging the gap um, within stage one we have those three points common ground analogy question stage two is the humanity and there's a few ways that we can demonstrate the humanity of the preborn child First and foremost, what we call the human rights argument. Human rights argument is four. Um, it, it's a syllogism in many ways, three points contributing towards a conclusion, um, a syllogism put to question format. So we lay the foundation by asking, okay, could we agree that all humans get human rights? The vast majority of people that you're going to speak with are going to agree that yes, all humans should get human rights. Question two sounds very elementary, but it's really important that we, we frame it so that we, we are building off of the same foundation. Question two is, if something is growing, isn't it alive? And this helps us point towards even the very beginning of human life at the moment of fertilization. If something is growing, even from one cell to two cells to four cells, isn't it alive? Again, the overwhelming majority of people that you are going to speak with are going to acknowledge that if something is growing, it must be alive. We're going to do an episode down the road as to how do we clarify that if if they're bringing up things that appear to be growing but actually aren't or are growing as a part of a larger entity. So we'll dive more deeply into that, but the vast majority of people are going to acknowledge that, yes, if something is growing, it must be alive. Question three, if that living organism has human parents isn't he or she a living human words matter words matter tremendously in the abortion conversation in particular and there's a lot of intentional verbiage and and um words being used in that If that living organism, so I'm I'm bringing this down to an individual living organism that we just talked about. If Something is growing, isn't it alive? If that living organism, using the language I just established in my second question, if that living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? It's not, won't he or she become a living human? Isn't he or she. In this current moment, isn't he or she a living human? I put the he or she to give a relational component to that preborn child who is often viewed in a very abstract sense. Isn't he or she, not isn't it a living human? Isn't he or she a living human? Again, the vast majority of people are going to acknowledge that. And those three points, all humans getting human rights. We have a living organism because we have a growing something and that living organism has human parents, therefore is a living human, we draw that all together with our fourth and final question in the human rights argument. Wouldn't that make abortion a human rights violation? This changes our um, perspective on the abortion issue away from only looking at one individual being the suffering mother, um, to doesn't that make abortion as a potential solution actually a human rights violation? Because though it might in some ways solve the problem of one, it creates a gigantic ethical problem by directly and intentionally killing another innocent human being. And this is without a doubt, the most effective conversation tool that we have um, in our, that we have ever witnessed. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? Well, In Western Canada, over the last two and a bit years, we have tracked just under 10,000 conversations with abortion advocates, people who come into a conversation supporting abortion in one way or another. And of those just under 10,000 pro-abortion-minded people, 27% of them walk away fully pro-life by the end of a conversation, with an additional 25% more walking away significantly more pro-life. And a huge proportion of that movement can be attributed towards these four questions. Can we, do, can we agree all humans get human rights? Number one. Number two, if something is growing, isn't it alive? Number three, if a living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? And question four, wouldn't that make abortion a human rights violation? Those four questions are incredibly useful. Two real quick things that I'll mention before I move on to the third and final part of our um, roadmap. If there are disagreements around the humanity of preborn children, two very quick things that I would suggest, both of which in some ways are appeals to authority, which I know in some ways is a logical fallacy, but not a human fallacy in any stretch of the imagination, um, for good reason. Number one is to show the reality of what abortion does. If there's any discussion, debate on lack of clarity around whether or not abortion kills an innocent human, that's clarified beyond a shadow of a doubt by showing the reality of what abortion does to a preborn child. Second of all, if there's any hesitancy to admit that this is a living human prior to abortion, again, abortion victim photography will capture the humanity of that precious individual so fully in not only an academic factual kind of way, but in a relational way as well, that resonates uh, with the heartstrings of the people that we encounter. Anchoring their considerations of abortion through the lens of relationship with a preborn child rather than through the lens of legislation and statistics. And so two ways to further clarify the humanity. Many people, as I mentioned, a quarter of people, just over a quarter of people are going to become fully pro-life largely through that approach. If necessary, we may drop down into the third and final component of the um, roadmap for effective pro-life conversation. So we've gone through justifications, area one. We've gone through the humanity, area two. This is the third and final, which we call the personhood or the value Um, Challenge. And so, if somebody comes out of the humanities saying that they don't think all humans should get human rights, they don't think that abortion is a human rights violation because they're going to backtrack on question one of the human rights argument, that yes, they will accept that these are living members of the human species. We never drop down into personhood until we get verbal, accurate, concrete confirmation that they acknowledge that these are living members of the human species. Only then may we drop down into a discussion around whether all humans should get human rights. If they say, sure, they are human, but they're not valuable because they are not sentient, because they are not viable, because they are not not capable of performing certain functions or doing particular things, then... Once they've acknowledged, again, they have to acknowledge that they're a living member of the human species. If they don't, then you're staying in the humanity realm and diving deeper into that, maybe through pictures, maybe through an appeal to authority by Googling. That was the second thing I wanted to mention. Google, when does human life begin? Every credible resource will acknowledge that human life begins at fertilization. Once they've acknowledged the humanity, but they're disagreeing on whether or not all humans get human rights, all you need to do is ask why the difference that they have identified exists in the first place. If they say sure they are human, but they don't get human rights like you and I because they're not viable. Okay, why is a preborn child not viable? Well, be because of their body structures. Okay, why why aren't their body structures able to survive outside of the womb? Why 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 does that difference exist between born and preborn children? Why why why? And if you ask the question why enough, you will come to the answer of because of how old they are. Why does that difference exist because of how old that human being is? And what they've acknowledged there that we're going to repeat back to them is it sounds like what you're saying is that it is okay to discriminate human rights based on the age of the human. By repeating it back to them in those terms, by acknowledging that what they're saying is age-based discrimination, saying that you have to be a particular age to get human rights, then many people are going to acknowledge that, or some people, I suppose, are going to acknowledge that, yeah, that—that that is what I'm saying. You have to be viable, and if that equates to how old somebody is, then I'm okay saying that age-based discrimination is a, a valid form of discrimination. And at that point, all we need to do, following up all of our questions, why, and the clarification repeated back to them as to the fact that they support age-based discrimination, is to ask the question, why is age-based discrimination, saying it's okay to kill a human based on how old they are, any better than any other form of discrimination? Why is it okay to kill somebody because of their age, but not because of another arbitrary um factor or um attribute and that's a really difficult question to answer because what they've done in realizing that is they've realized that they are the discriminatory party that you and i as pro-lifers set the bar as low as appropriately possible we are simply saying that you do not need to earn human rights the only factor that contributes to whether or not you can be killed as an innocent human being is whether you are a living innocent human being. If you want to extend human rights beyond the human species, you're welcome to do so. However, if we acknowledge that we all have the equal right to life, that equal right must be based on something that we all share equally. The only thing that we all share equally is our membership in the human family. That is the only thing that you and I and every other human being share equally. And so, they have to articulate why they are comfortable now not being the inclusive one with pro-lifers being the exclusive or discriminatory ones towards mothers and fathers who want to have abortions but rather they are the ones who are discriminating who we can kill and who we cannot kill based off of how old they are and they have to be able to articulate why age is an appropriate measure of value different than any other different than skin color different than gender different than ethnicity or education level or any other factor that has tragically been discriminated upon in that's how we want to approach it we can build it all together in a summary of so as they are grappling how do we get them to become fully pro-life we're going to summarize it so you and i talked at the beginning about the hard circumstances that mothers and fathers are faced with and while we agree that there are hard circumstances like when a mother is faced with a decision about her career slash education and the life of a child, we can't kill a born child to solve a dilemma like that. And then we talked about the fact that preborn children are living members of the human species. And finally, how all living humans get human rights, regardless of their age, or else we'd be discriminating based on age. So if I go back to the last question of the human rights argument— Doesn't that make abortion a human rights violation? At this point, you're probably going to get one of three outcomes. One, which happens quite regularly, is that they will go towards another justification. Sexual assault, bodily autonomy, something other like that. And you can go through the exact same approach of common ground knowledge question. We're going to cover more of those in the upcoming weeks. Situation two is they're going to become pro-life. You know, I've never thought about it that way. I agree with you that that is age-based discrimination. Discrimination and that would make abortion a human rights violation. You're right. Okay, now we're going to try to get them plugged in, plug them into a pro life community, that kind of thing. The third and final thing that they're going to do is that they're going to want to end the conversation. When they realize that they're wrong, when they realize that you have demonstrated in a very logical, very succinct way that abortion is, in fact, a human rights violation, there's a lot of strings attached to somebody's abortion perspective, the relationships that they're in, the company that they keep, the decisions that they or their loved ones have made in the past, it can be challenging to change your mind on the spot about something as big and as important and as commonly experienced as abortion. And so there's many people that want to end the conversation and that's where you want to challenge them in a a charitable capacity that what would we be doing if born children were being killed in the same way that could we cling to a worldview because we've always known that worldview um, to be where we align or because of the impact that it has on other people in our lives would we persevere in our support of an injustice because of the impact that changing would have on the other born people around us. Presumably not. And so challenging them to acknowledge the the difficulties that will come up through changing their their opinion on this worldview, acknowledging the challenges that it presents to how they view actions and maybe even, unfortunately, people connecting them with post-abortion healing ministries, connecting them with other support, seeking to understand further the ripple effects that this worldview has in their life can have a tremendous impact in somebody's comfort and ultimately willingness to accept the pro-life worldview. So that's the application. That is what I would say in response to, I think abortion should be allowed for those uh, mothers and fathers who are at the cusp of turning the page, starting a new chapter in their life, and this is going to throw off the narrative of their story walking through those steps. I hope that makes sense. If you have any questions, if you have suggestions for further episodes that you'd like me to tackle, please, um, connect with me either on social media, primarily Facebook or Instagram. I'm not super active on anything else at this point. Um, or hit me an email, email at prolifeguys.com or hit us up on our website, www.prolifeguys.com. Um, I'm sure there's other ways you can get in touch with me as well. If you have my phone number, shoot me a a message or whatever. If you don't have my phone number, sign up for one of our um, courses or programs or become a Patreon supporter and you'll get instant access to yours truly if you would like that in any way. Um, But yeah, without further conversation, I hope that uh, that offers a little bit of clarity towards an effective way to engage on that topic in particular. I pray that God may bless you and your team of growing pro-lifers abundantly wherever you're at however many hours are left in your day.